When I was a college student, I spent two summers uh, serving with churches in the Boston area. And in those two summers, I would encounter what I would call beauty in midst of the ugly. The first summer, I served with several other college students in a town called Jamaica Plain. Uh, many of you might know where that is. It's a neighborhood just southwest of Boston. And our goal as college students was to explore the area, to get to know people, and to come up with a plan for how a new church might serve that community. As a kid who had never been in a big city like Boston, I remember walking around fascinated at cool coffee shops. Uh, in Jamaica Plain, it's where all the hipsters hang out, so there's cool murals on the walls. Um, I enjoyed the green spaces. There's a local pond there. Uh, there was beauty there in Jamaica Plain. But I also saw the ugly. I remember recognizing the drug houses in the house that had satanic emblems on the porch and in the yard. I remember hearing news of gang activity and two people who were shot dead just a few blocks from the gym that I went to that summer. This was ugly and you might even say hideous. In the second summer, I returned to the Boston area and served with the church, many of you are aware of, Hope Fellowship. Um, in the previous summer and that summer, I remember being struck by the amount of those who were street involved and struggling with homelessness, some with some serious mental health issues and drug addictions even. So there was such ugliness, now not the people inherently, but the reality that those things exist. They're ugly. I was so encouraged by the beauty of the drop-in ministry that Hope Fellowship has there once a week. The church facilities were opened up for those very people to come in, to receive a meal, to clean their clothes, to take a shower, and to even hear a message from the Bible that they were invited to respond to the gospel. And this is a beautiful thing. Uh, this local church was shining God's beauty in the midst of the ugly realities of sin and brokenness there. And fast forward to today, that drop-in ministry still continues there in Porter Square. And there's also now a church plant in Jamaica Plain. Uh, they're serving the tangible and spiritual needs of that community. Now, these churches are shining God's beauty in the midst of a dark, ugly world of sin. This week, we've seen sin rear its ugly head in an even more serious way. In Ukraine, war is underway as we speak, and yet I can't get the picture out of my head of, you might have seen this on the news, Ukrainian Christians gathering together to pray. They're on their knees praying. Now, some would look at this and call it foolish, calling out to the God of heaven and earth, asking him to work for them while their country is becoming war-torn. But that's exactly what they're doing. And in the midst of the ugliness of war, they are a beautifully praying people. So in the midst of very real problems in our world, things such as drug overdoses and gang activity, homelessness and war, what are we doing? And what are we supposed to do? Maybe you ask those kinds of questions. Now, there's many ways of answering that. And some might think our solution 
is foolish, but primarily in the midst of the ugliness of our world, God brings about beauty through the work of the local church and the spreading of local churches. And that's what we see in today's passage. And this is what I hope to argue for today. The local church shines God's beauty in the midst of a dark and ugly world of sin. This morning, we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts, and we'll be in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. That's Acts 14, verses 19 through 28. Um, So I invite you to join me there in your Bibles as we read God's Word together. Um, I don't know the page number, but there's some hardback black Bibles around you if you wanted to uh, use those uh, instead of your own. You're welcome to do that. So join me as we read God's Word this morning, starting in verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done among them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. It's our text this morning. My goal this morning is to show you that the local church shines God's beauty in the midst of a dark and ugly world of sin. I want to do that by showing you a few things from the text and to bring them to bear on us. Uh, as a local church. So first, God works among us. As a local church, God works among us. Second, we strengthen each other as a local church. And third, God fulfills his mission through us. God works among us, we strengthen each other, and God fulfills his mission through us. Now, you might have noticed that our passage picks up in the middle of a story. And if you weren't here last week, you might be thinking, well, what's going on? Well, I want to get us caught up a little bit. Uh, So Acts Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 28 are a conclusion and a summary of Paul's first missionary journey. He and a man named Barnabas were set apart by God and sent by the church to Antioch to accomplish a task that the Lord had called them to. We read about this in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. Paul and Barnabas set sail from Antioch. They go to an island called Cyprus. Then they continue on through the southern region of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey today. And as they go, they preach the gospel. They preach the gospel to many who would have never heard it before. Now, in the midst of all of this missionary activity that's going on, they get into some interesting situations. So in one city, they get rebuked by a magician. And then they respond by blinding him. 
They get threatened to be stoned, and then at one point they get mistaken to be Greek gods. So you might could say they've been on quite the trip. So the Greek god scene is where we left off last week at the end of verse 18 in Acts chapter 14. But uh, Paul and Barnabas, while they're in the situation, they preach the good news of a living God. Now these people, they press upon them and they have a strong desire to like worship Paul and Barnabas. They're desiring to offer sacrifices to them. Now the missionaries do their very best to stop all of the sanity because they realize they're not gods and they're barely able to even stop them from doing so. Now that's where we come to our passage today. I was catching up, uh, catching us up there just a bit. Um, but significantly, among all of these crazy events, this was the first attempt by anyone to make a sustained attempt to share the gospel among the nations. Now, this is something that Jesus specifically promised would happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So, how did it go? How did this first missionary journey go? Well, it's quite remarkable that not only did their efforts prove fruitful, but God worked through them. Now, that's the first, first point for us. Uh, we know that the local church shines God's beauty because God works among us. And we see that in verses 19 and 20. God works among us. But every now and then you're reading the Bible and you come to a verse and some things just sound so bizarre that you have to kind of make a double take. Now, this is one of those times, verse 19. So let's take a look at it again. He says, the writer Luke says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So after the locals of Lystra tried to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, and after they tried to stop them from doing such a thing, the Jews traveled from Antioch and Iconium to stir up a crowd and to kill Paul. Now these people... This crowd was just recently mistaken him for a Greek god, and now they want to kill him. So what's going on here? It's kind of crazy. Well, I think the sudden change in crowd mentality is intentional here by the author. You see, crowds don't have a great track record in the Gospels and in Acts. They're often easily swayed, and they hardly ever keep their stories straight. And on top of this, just about everywhere that Paul went, the Jews opposed him. And they stirred up controversy. So the Jews had adamantly opposed him. And when he preached the gospel in Antioch, they had opposed him even in Iconium as well. So here they showed the extent of their opposition to him. Antioch was over 100 miles away. So these Jews went 100 miles to do one thing. <laughs> they wanted to oppose Paul and possibly even to kill him for his message. And from what they can tell, this militaristic mission succeeded. They stole Paul and they drag him out of the city because they think he's dead. But later he rises up and the narrator, and the narrator hardly stops to elaborate on anything that just happened. But here's where I want us to focus our attention. So Luke doesn't stop to explain the miraculous rising of Paul. But he does make a strong point about how the change occurred. Notice what happens at the hinge there between Paul's seeming death and his rising. In verse 20, it says this, The only thing in between is death and his rising. But when the disciples gathered 
about him. The details are less important, but the place of divine power is important. The disciples gathered, and the apostle whom they loved rose from the dead, and the disciples themselves, they would have recognized that they had no power to do such a thing. But God did. God was working among them. And friends, today, God works among us. As his gathered disciples, as his local church, God works among us today. You see, the local church shines beautifully through her gathering. And I believe specifically through her praying. I say this because I think their gathering around Paul wasn't just their physical bodies huddled up around Paul, but they were praying for Paul. I think they're doing something very similar to what Peter had done in Acts chapter 9. So they were looking up to God and praying that he would intervene and come into the situation. Peter had prayed for a girl named Tabitha or Dorcas to, to rise from the dead. And it says Paul was praying for them. I think they're doing a very similar thing here. They're asking for him to work as only he could in the midst of their situation. Now, church family, what a diamond of truth we have about our God in this verse. God delights to work among his people to do what only he can do. Isaiah 64, 4 says it well. The prophet says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by ear, and no eye has seen a God besides you who works for those who wait for him. Some might call us foolish, but we are not ashamed to call our God powerful. Our God acts for those who wait for them, those who pray for him, those who trust him to give what only his hands can provide. See, the local church might not be impressive in the eyes of the world, but as Isaiah says, no one has seen a God like our God. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God says to call upon me. And then he says, we are the ones who get deliverance. And then it says, he is the one who gets the glory. Now look at the flow of both of these verses. We wait and God acts. We call and God delivers. We get what we need and he gets the glory that is due to his name. And notice in our verse in Acts, the church gathers and God acts. Friends, do you realize that God works among us as we gather to worship and to pray? This is a powerful passage about the local church. So you might feel that you're one of these kinds of people. And God does unique things among his local church as we gather, as we pray. So do you find yourself battling an ongoing pattern of sin and temptation? God is faithful to cleanse you as you battle alongside your brothers and sisters. Do you find yourself in deep discouragement or are you grieving this morning? See, God works among us to lift our eyes out of despair as we hear each other pray and sing. That's why it's important for you to lift up your voice and sing. You're encouraging someone next to you. Are you fearful or lonely? God works among us to provide hope and a family. 
And you might be one who comes in today and you feel like you are really messed up. You feel like you've sinned against God. Maybe you're one who even feels that you have need of a Savior. Well, God does what only he can do through our gathering. God works among us to proclaim the good news. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God works as only he can to give eternal life. He works to forgive your sins, to bring you into a relationship with him, and to give you fullness of life, not only eternally, but in the here and now. All of this is made available to you by believing in him and turning from your sin. And even this is a gift of God. It's God's work in you. Only God can do these things. And he does them uniquely through a local body of believers in the church. So how else, as a local church, do we shine God's beauty in a dark and ugly world of sin? We strengthen each other, and we find this in verses 21 through 25. We strengthen each other. I'll pick up reading again in verse 20. As the next day, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Okay, Derby would have been the farthest place that Paul and Barnabas would travel on this mission trip. But I don't want us to miss this. This is the very next day after being nearly stoned to death. Paul takes a 70-mile journey to another city. This is a miraculous work of God that they continue preaching the gospel in this way. Now, what a testament to the strength that God was giving to Paul at this time. See, Paul now understand truly what perseverance meant. And he knew the price of his perseverance. Dane preached about perseverance last week. If you remember, Paul recognizes the price of such perseverance. Much like his master and Lord, he knew the price. But what were they going to do in the city? Well, we see that in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. So they continue the work that they had been doing all along. They traveled to cities, they preached the gospel, and they make disciples in those cities. Now, what are they doing? They're doing the work of church planting. Now, this particular section of Scripture gives us one of the most succinct descriptions of God or, or Paul's church planting method. So this is practically what Paul is doing as he was on his missionary journeys. And today we still take our cues from Paul's methods of doing ministry. And Paul himself takes his cues from Jesus. Notice what it says in the text there in verse 21. They made many disciples. Now, some of you might recognize this terminology from your discipleship groups that we have going on in the church, memorizing certain passages of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus gives the disciples their mission in the world. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Here, we're seeing the disciples do just that. They're making disciples. And look at how they make disciples. They're doing so by preaching the gospel. Now, it's not flashy, but it is powerful. Now, Beacon, we continue this mission. We do so as a church, and you do so as a Christian in your families and among your friends and in your workplaces. Keep making disciples like you're already doing, and keep sharing this good news of Jesus. Keep doing what the apostles are doing here. And very quickly, the disciples 
Continue on in verse 21. So this passage is quickly moving. It says in verse 21, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Now it's significant to note that these places were areas that Paul and Barnabas had already previously preached the gospel. And evidently churches were planted in these areas. The missionaries were practically just retracing their steps. And for what purpose? Well, it says in verse 22, it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. As they checked in on these new believers in these towns that they had previously visited, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. I love this phrase. Friends, have you ever thought about your one-on-one conversations with another believer as strengthening their soul? As you point each other to Christ and encourage each other in your walks with him, you're practically pouring liquid steel into each other's souls. You are strengthening each other to remain steadfast, to be immovable, to always abound in the work of the Lord. You are doing that. You are strengthening the soul of another Christian as you encourage them. So there are more details given here. And I take within the text that Luke is giving us three ways that Paul and Barnabas strengthened the souls of these young churches. The first is encouragement. We see that in verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith. You see, the the missionaries strengthened the souls of new believers through their encouragement. Now, friends, if you ever think that somehow we graduate from the need of encouragement, you're either mistaken or sorely deceived. I think that more Practically, no one actually believes that we do. I think that more often we suffer from a lack of encouragement. Maybe you feel that. Like how many of us feel that we're just too encouraged? I've been given too much encouragement today. Dylan, I don't think I can handle any more. I don't think anyone feels that way. And so if you recognize that about yourself, what might that mean about the person sitting next to you? today. Your encouragement to another brother or sister in Christ is soul strengthening. If you realize that you need encouragement, why don't you reach out to a friend today or this week with a specific word of encouragement? It might look something like this. I say, sister, I noticed you've been navigating a particularly difficult season in your life. Stay faithful. Jesus is with you. Or it might look like Brother, when you shared your story last week when we were meeting, that really lifted me up. Keep on. Keep doing that. Or when you shared that Bible verse with me, it really connected my mind and my heart to God at that particular moment when I needed it. Thank you. Don't underestimate the power of a simple word of encouragement to another person. Encouragement truly does strengthen our souls. Now, the second way that Paul and Barnabas strengthen the souls of the young churches is by encouraging them to endurance. We see that in verse 22 as Luke continues on. He says, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about endurance here. 
I take this to mean that endurance and this tribulation and entering into the kingdom of God was the central teaching of Paul as he went around to these new churches. And this wouldn't be surprising necessarily as we look through Acts 13 and Acts 14. They tell us how in each of these cities, Paul and Barnabas were driven away and they were threatened by those who opposed their message. And it's very likely that those who believed in these cities would have received very similar threats as they stayed. So this is a common theme in the book of Acts. As the gospel spreads and the disciples stay on their mission, tribulations come. Now this shouldn't be a surprise even to us. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then he says this provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And again, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, if we endure, we will also reign with him. All three of these verses highlight the movement of the Christian life. Tribulation before kingdom, suffering before glorification, endurance before reigning. Now, this might be hard. It might be a hard teaching for us to hear. But if you are a Christian, you have an eternal weight of glory waiting for you. If we do not bear a cross, Jesus says, we will also not bear a crown. But yet, if we do endure, we will get this. Paul knew this very well. It's very likely in this season of time, in this point in history, is the time when Galatians would have been written. One of the other New Testament letters that Paul wrote, very likely the first one. And it's likely that Paul actually refers to the stoning of his in Galatians 6, verse 17. He says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You see, what he's saying here is that the shape of the life of his life, the shape of the life of the apostle is the shape of the life of his Savior. And friends, the shape of the life of a Christian follows the life of our Savior as well. After all, Jesus said in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you. The, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is heavy, but it's real. And we have a real life, a current example of such endurance for the faith in Ukraine. I've Reference them many times, and it's it's honestly when I read news like this, it's such a challenge to me to read about Christians in persecuted areas. And yet, when I read them, I'm challenged, but I'm also encouraged, and I'm strengthened in my faith, as the text says here. I'm particularly challenged and also encouraged uh, by the words of the president of Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary. I mentioned in my prayer that there's faculty on the staff of the seminary who are graduates of the very same seminary that I go to. And these are the words that he said this week about the seminary, about the church. He says, the church will go underground here in Ukraine. We had that under the Soviet Union. The church did not forget what it means to be persecuted. He says, we will rearrange, reorganize, and this is just amazing. He said, we will do what we always do. Preach the gospel. Friends, no matter what comes our way, let's learn from these brothers and sisters. Let's be mindful to pray for them 
as they're going through their own suffering. And let's do what we always do. Let's preach the gospel and let's strengthen each other through enduring in the gospel alongside each other. We can do this together. And finally, Paul and Barnabas give us a third way in which they strengthen the souls of the disciples. That's through elders. It says in verse 23, And when they appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. See, Paul and Barnabas as apostles, they're sharing the gospel in new lands, they're establishing churches, and they're doing so complete with faithful elders. Now, these elders were the ones who were to continue the missionaries' work that they had been doing. They had been strengthening the souls of the disciples um, in a more sustained way. So as Paul and Barnabas went on, there were men who stayed, and they encouraged the church there. So they stayed and served the believers in that church. Now, we have elders here at our church, and I'm very blessed to be one of those and to serve you as one. But when Beacon started, it wasn't like Dane cleverly came up with this idea to just put elders in the church. No, it's something that's clearly given in the Bible. See, churches appoint elders, and elders lead. They teach, they care for the people in the church. See, elders aren't primarily decision makers in the church. They're primarily spiritual shepherds of people. We are those who care for those who are underneath the oversight of the chief shepherd. That's Jesus who cares for you, who loves you. And the Bible talks about elders as functioning in that role, caring for you as people. And this is one of the clear statements in the Bible about plural eldership. Now by that, I mean Paul and Barnabas did not just appoint a singular pastor that functions like a CEO and then makes all the decisions. He points here and there and says, oh, you go do this and that. They're not making all the decisions. Rather, they're, point, they're appointing multiple elders, those who share the responsibility to care for people. Now, perhaps it's intuitive to us since we've always had elders here at Beacon, but insofar as God provides, it's always a benefit to have this responsibility shared among multiple people. And what a gift it is to serve with the elders here. Um, Friends, I also recognize that for me and for other, the other men that serve in this way, it's a weighty responsibility. The writer of Hebrews tells us that elders keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. We will give an account for our spiritual care for you as a church member. So, like the disciples did here, will you pray for us? Will you pray for me and Dane and Dave and Alex and Aaron, as we seek to shepherd faithfully? And will you pray that we'll do so in such a way that is strengthening to your soul? That's far beyond anything we're capable to do in ourselves. But by your prayers and by God's grace, we might be able to do it. So will you pray for us? And so, through encouragement, through endurance, and through elders, we strengthen each other as a local church. And in so doing, we shine God's beauty in the world. So finally, the local church shines God's beauty in the world. We've seen through God working among us, through strengthening each other, and now finally, God fulfills his mission through us. The local church shines God's beauty because God fulfills his mission through us. In verse 24, Paul and Barnabas continue their missionary journey by passing through cities where they had previously 
been. So it says that after strengthening the souls of the disciples, verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. See, the apostles are retracing their steps and they return to their sending church. And then verse 26, it continues on. It says, from there they sailed to Antioch and where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done among them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. See, they fulfilled the mission that the Holy Spirit had given to them in Acts 13, verse 2. After a year to a year and a half, they had returned to their sending church in Antioch. And just like Our missionaries often do today when they return back to the States, these men give a report. So they look at what they have done. Well, they give a report, and it's interesting to note what they give a report of. They don't focus on what they did. Now, it's certainly, they have done a lot. They had traveled by land and by sea. You might think of stories that they would talk about. Oh, look at all these things that we saw in the sea, or all the things that we had done while we were traveling. Or they might talk about how they had been persecuted quite brutally uh, for the things that they were doing. No, they weren't talking about things that they did, but they were specifically declaring a report about all that God had done on this mission. They told stories of people being astonished at the teaching of the Lord we read about earlier in Acts. They told stories about preaching the gospel in Jewish synagogues with some believing and some begging that they might teach even more to them. And significantly, they told stories about new birth. So people were actually trusting in Jesus for the first time who had never heard of him before. Now, this was truly a work of God among them. And these new births were not only among Jews, who were the historical people of God, but they were among the Gentiles as well. So look at what the text says. It says, God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And this is the beauty of ascending church, receiving reports of the work of God that he had done among them. You know, we at Beacon have similar stories that we could tell. The gospel is shared and people believe. Now, some of you in this room, that's you. These are stories that we can tell that are encouraging to one another. You heard the gospel, maybe you read the Bible, you wrestled with some of your questions about Christianity, and you eventually trusted in Christ. It's an amazing thing that God does when he does these kinds of things. But some of you might be a visitor today. Now, you might be somewhere else along this journey. And some of you, as I'm talking, might be curious about some of the things that we do as a church, some of the things I'm even talking about. Now, we would love to see you continue your story. Like, what is the next step of faith in your journey? I'd be happy to talk with you if you're a visitor here today and are interested in making next steps. Um, talk to somebody else in this church family. We have many people who love to encourage each other in the faith. So don't come here and feel like you're alone in your faith journey. We want to help you. We want to help each other to do this. So the report of the missionaries here in Acts 14, beyond our church family, beyond what's going on there, It has amazing implications for the future of Christianity. Look at what it was talking about, the Gentiles and the mission moving forward. It's very clear that God is including Gentiles into his family. Christianity 
after this point, and after this point in history, would forever change. The global landscape of Christianity would be forever different. So anyone that God would choose to save, that's Jew or Gentile alike, would be included in the church. And from here on in the book of Acts, as we continue through it, there's a decisive shift. So later missions would no longer focus primarily on going to synagogues and talking to Jews, but they would focus on Gentiles. And that's very good news for someone like, very likely, me or you, who are not a Jewish person. God is including all peoples in his family. So God fulfilled his mission for including the Gentiles through Paul and Barnabas' first mission to Turkey. And God continues to fulfill his mission for saving lost people today. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that specifically that happens through the church. This is what he says in Ephesians 3.10. He says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. The church is the place that that happens. And in Revelation 7, it points ahead to a day when a great multitude that could not be numbered or gathered together. Every nation, every tribe, all peoples and languages are standing before the throne and they're before the Lamb and they cry out with a loud voice and they say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How does something like that happen at the end of time? Well, it's through the mission of the church to make disciples of all nations. God fulfills his mission through us. And this is a strong reason for us to continue meeting the ugliness of sin in our world with the beauty of our gathering, of our preaching, of our praying. See, God is at work among us. We strengthen each other, and God fulfills his mission through us. This is truly a beautiful thing, is it not? Every now and then, I know people look at me as foolish for moving to Boston for desiring to see God's beauty to transform the ugliness that we see in our city. <laughs> they might say, could you not do anything else among all the other needs in the world? And people might look at you as being foolish as well. Like, Why bear the cost of following Jesus when none of your coworkers do? Or when none of your neighbors do? Well, it's not easy, but friends, it is worth it. And we're exactly where we need to be, doing exactly what we need to do. See, the ugliness of this world, the root of it all is sin, and it has only changed the transformative work of God in the world. And God delights to use people like you and me, his local church, as his instruments to see that transformation happen. So, as a church Let's continue to shine this beautiful God in our world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for our grace to us, for saving us, for working among us, for strengthening us, for fulfilling your mission through us. Lord, we pray that you would break our hearts for the ugliness of sin in our world, even in our own lives. And Lord, empower us to be faithful to you in sharing the gospel, that your saving work might be known in all of the world. And Lord, we're mindful to pray even at this time for our international missionary partners who carry out this task daily, who feel what it means to persevere. So Lord, would you give them perseverance? Would you give us perseverance? Would you strengthen their souls? Would you use us to encourage them? And would you raise up 
more local churches to proclaim your beauty through them. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.